0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: It fell off the roof of my car.
2: It fell out of my backpack. Oh, it fell off my grocery cart.
0: I tossed it to a really clumsy friend.
2: I tripped while chugging.
0: My two-year-old had a temper tantrum.
2: It bounced down two flights of stairs.
0: No matter how you broke your smartphone, there's only one smart way to fix it. Batteries Plus Bulbs.
2: I dropped it on the floor, and he stepped on it.
0: (gasps) Schedule your repair at BatteriesPlus.com.
2: Okay, we are back here with Socratic Dialogues and I am on the line with Professor Fred Bauman of Kenyon College, professor of political science. Um how are you doing, Professor? Just fine. Thank you very much. Yes, and today we're going to be discussing uh what would Nietzsche think of Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh we we um We've had some off-air discussions about this, so you know I, I'm, s- I'm sort of familiar with your position. But um, just for yeah. the interest of our um, our audience, we will uh, just act like I don't know anything about what you know. So, uh, I just before we get into uh, this question, I would like to ask you what? Why do you believe? Because you do teach on a regular basis, Nietzsche. Yeah. Uh, why do you believe Nietzsche is an important thinker to study today?
1: Well, look. Do you know? There's a little old English verse that goes like this. As I was walking up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish to hell he'd go away. That's Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the man on the stair who nobody wanted to have be there, but who is there. Uh, That's why I think his thought moved from being utterly bizarre and obscure to... Absolutely cutting edge for all of philosophy, except in the Anglo-Saxon world, which always catches up later, but eventually caught up. Why? What had happened in the 18th century with people like Hume and Rousseau was that the notion that there is such a thing as a solid human nature on which we can base our understanding of what is true disappeared and turned into history. And once you're in history, there's no way out because everything you say is itself historically conditioned and there's no possibility of getting outside of history or things being true as such because you're simply expressing the culture of your time. And philosophers like Marx and Hegel tried to get out of it by saying, ooh, history has ended, so now the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, says Hegel. Now we can know. And Nietzsche came along and said, if this is true, then life will be terminally boring because there will be nothing to live for anymore, and, if, and it probably is not true. And if that's so, you have to face nihilism. You have to face radical relativism. And you also have to face with that... The idea that the search for truth is an illusion of vanity and a folly. And you have to make do with a world in which there are no guidelines anymore. And if you say, well, natural science explains the world, yeah, but it doesn't explain the world in a way that's particularly useful to human beings, yeah? Um, you can know that it's this or that function going on in the brain, but it doesn't tell you the answer to the question, should I be a scientist or anything else? So Nietzsche became the great stumbling block. Yeah, If you wanted to talk about what is just and what is not just, which is, of course, the essence of political life, uh, what should we do? It's not about power. It's about what do you do with power if you have it. There you... You, you face complete incoherence. And ever since Nietzsche, I think, we are still dealing with his heritage. What do you do now? There, The postmoderns very much have tried to tame Nietzsche and make him somehow nice. This is what Alan Bloom calls left Nietzscheanism. Um but that, I think, is ultimately inconsistent. But they end up saying, well, this is my story and I'm going to stick with it. Okay, fine. But why should that persuade anyone else? So you have all this talk about narratives and nothing is really true, but I want it anyway. Um, then you have people who, in a way, went back to the beginnings and said, well, maybe maybe Nietzsche got something wrong. So uh, people like Leo Strauss, who went back to uh, Plato and Aristotle, and Heidegger, who goes back to the pre-Socratics and tries to start over again. Um, one way or another, uh, if you're serious about political thought, about justice, um, you got to deal with him. And it's a real question, and this was, of course, what Strauss was concerned about, Whether in the end liberal democracy can retain its good conscience, its confidence uh, on its own basis, or whether in the end it's not always going to be destroyed, dissolved by historicism, radical historicism, which is to say Nietzsche. Does that make sense or is that too academic and abstract? (laughs) I'm sure it makes sense. Uh, on a certain level, to me, but I I wanted to
2: clarify it a little bit for the audience yeah. here. Um, I, I I think that what you're saying, and, and if I can just um, boil this down here, what you're saying is that Nietzsche sort of um, he calls into question the he he says that essentially every philosophy is a reflection of the time that it comes about
1: and the character of the philosopher.
2: Yeah, yeah, the fundamental character of the philosopher, yeah. and and the will, to, what he calls the will to power of the, yeah. of the, and so, so, but the, my question about that is, is when when you look at that, and you kind of doesn't it just make you th- like you said throw up your hands and and yeah. say yeah. you know, everything is relative and therefore you know. It's not even worthy to pursue these kind of questions anymore. Well,
1: that's what Nietzsche says about that. Those are the two alternatives, you yeah? know, kind of passive nihilism or somehow through will to power affirming that even though it's meaningless, you're going to create meaning, which, in other words, turns philosophy into poetry makes it into right. the, the creation of fictions, which you know to be fictions, but which you still will. And always run, for me, this, it always runs into the old Groucho Marx problem. Why would I jo- want to join a club that would have me for a member? <laughs> Why would I believe in something that I invented? Um, but, yeah, exactly. It, you, it can lead you either to um, a kind of disgusting passivity, yeah, or else it can lead you to craziness. And where is there room for anything reasonable or decent? How do you defend decency, normal behavior? Yeah, right. Um, without it being undercut and mocked, and you know, treated as a silly illusion of silly, superficial people. That's always the problem. And that's why I think you've got to deal with him. He's still the man on the stair who you don't want to be there, but he's still there.
2: And he's the and he's the first man to come up with this
1: formulation? I mean, it seems like... Um, yeah. A, a well, kind of, I don't know. I mean, I don't know everybody in right, the past. Right. But, yeah, I, he's the first guy who I think says it clearly and powerfully and radically I mean the word nihilism precedes him it comes from the 19th century novel by the russian novelist turgenev but the nihilists he's talking about in fathers and sons are basically just scientific materialists positivists mm-hmm. that they, they don't go anywhere near as deep into this as as nietzsche does
2: seems like he um was trying to find a solution out of it um on mm-hmm. by basing Uh, His philosophy on um, a more fundamental principle of Mm -hmm. the will to power, um, and therefore that would
1: somehow bring it out of this historical. um, uh, Well, that's the question. I mean, what you're saying is what Heidegger says about him. He calls Nietzsche the last metaphysician. He says that you attacked the notion of being, that there's some way in which we can understand what is but he replaced it with voluntarism, with the will to power. Um, the thing is that Nietzsche is very ambiguous about this, as yeah, I understand it. Uh, you say to him, well, you've done it too. You've got your doctrine, the will to power. And he smiles at you and says, yeah, you're right. And so, so that can't be true, you say to him. And he says, yeah, you're right. So what? This is my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah? He talks about will to power as a hypothesis. Yeah, And he even ends up talking about it in almost neoplatonic forms, that maybe you know rocks, maybe inorganic nature is also characterized by will to power. You have to imagine a rock going, I am a rock. I am being a rock. <laughs> uh, yeah. I am exerting my, my gravitational force on what's, who knows? Um, it's a hypothesis. And if you try to pin him down with it and say, well, you're saying that's true. He's saying, no, it's just my story. My poem but
2: it's his, it's his poem as a solution um to yes this
1: essential that's uh, right uh, that's think. right um he He calls for new philosophers who will be in effect prophets, messiahs, uh, commanders, military leaders as well, and he rather hopes that there'll be different ones and they'll have big fights with each other. I
2: always um, thought that his most powerful critique of the Platonic and Christian tradition was this um, idea of perfection and how we're always falling short of it. And it has caused us all to look at reality as this shabby shadow of mm-hmm. something greater mm-hmm. and therefore to dev- devalue life in a way because we're yeah. always looking at some ideal that doesn't even exist. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean that's where he goes back to the pre-Socratic Greeks. Now you get that already in the birth of tragedy that that reason kills, that reason destroys existence. But the problem with the Greeks who loved existence for its own sake is that they were pre-philosophic. They were naive, and we can't return to that naivete anymore simply. So we have to reconstitute it at a post-philosophic level, at a post-Christian level, and that's much, much harder because you can't simply look up in the sky and say, oh, there's there's Apollo driving his chariot across the sky. That's the sun. Um so now you've got to do some weird twisted stuff to yourself to, to deal with what you already kind of know, which is that that isn't true. That's the problem of, of creating a poetic myth in, a, in an age which has already been rational and philosophic. So, yeah, that, it's a very powerful critique, up to a point at least, but it also doesn't solve the problem for him. Because he has to face he has to argue against reason rationally yeah
2: right but i there's this there's a sense in which everybody has kind of um Internalize this sense of their even their selves. Uh, you think of your ideal self and how you always fall short of it, and so people are in this sort of depression that they're not living up, quote unquote, to
1: their potential, and it's never it's
2: never yeah. enough,
1: you know. But that's that's not Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche is all about projects, like having ideals, having. Struggling with yourself, trying to be the the, 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 the person. ideal person for your project, uh, he's a big self-torturer. The last thing he is is a self-esteem guy. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean he's a very paradoxical thinker, and that's that's why he's so important. He doesn't simply reject; he incorporates what he rejects as well, and tries to make something out of it. You, the greater tensions, the you know the, the greater struggles. I mean, he, what he wants in the end is not Caesar, but Caesar with the heart of Christ. So you can imagine the, the degree of self-torture involved in that in order to pull that off. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, let, we'll, we'll um, go on to this, this
2: main question here. Um, so what do you think that a Nietzsche would think of a Donald Trump?
1: Well, I think he would have contempt for Donald Trump. I mean, for heaven's sake. You, 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 he, he's talking about Caesar with the heart of Christ, and we're talking about Donald Trump?
2: <laughs> Is there anything about uh, Donald Trump
1: that Nietzsche would admire? I don't think so. Not one thing. I, I can't think of anything. I'm sorry. But, look, here's the point. Nietzsche wants people who are extraordinarily ambitious in high spiritual ways he's worried about the vulgarization of human life he wants to ennoble human life he looks at bismarck who you know probably cuts in some way well above donald trump as far as character goes and i don't like bismarck and he didn't like bismarck because he thought he was a petty pipsqueak if he thought bismarck was a pipsqueak and a you know with his little blood and iron prussian nationalism what would he have thought of Trump? Um, you know, I, I just found out last night Trump is actually a member of the worldwide wrestling federation, I think it is, Hall of one Fame. of the competing organizations, Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah. He's he has I would think, to Nietzsche would say, he has no great project other than his own glorification and in a very vulgar and petty way. This is the kind of person I think Nietzsche would have despised. I don't see that there's anything he would have admired about him.
2: And and but I mean maybe his sort of uh, Machiavellianism. I mean, is there how
1: how Machiavellian is he? Look look at the uh, the uh, airstrike on Syria. Was this a deeply Machiavellian calculation? We'll find out. But my my guess is no. Mm -hmm. It looks like a fairly spontaneous eruption. Somebody who tweets all the time is might be a deep Machiavellian of all this is a mask for some great project. Uh you know, deep deep plot. But if there's something deep going on, I haven't seen it.
2: Is is Machiavellian a Nietzschean figure in uh, Machiavelli? Is that No.
1: Is, 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 is totally I mean, yes and no. Nietzsche admires things about Machiavelli. He admires his coolness, his dryness, um his delight in 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 really you know, asserting the the ugly stuff. But if you look I mean this is now how you read Machiavelli, but if I read Machiavelli the way I've been taught and the way I understand it, there is a tremendous amount of what you could call humanistic concern for human beings. He's he wants people to be bad, bad enough. He, he dislikes the effect of Christianity, but not because he, he loves being a devil, but rather because the effect of Christianity on politics has been to make life a disaster. Yeah, If the king of France had been Machiavellian and not Christian, he would have taken all of Italy, and there would have been peace and quiet. And because he was loyal to the Pope, Grateful to the Pope because he believed that peace, why not give peace a chance, he made a deal with the King of Spain who was able to get southern Italy, and as a result, Italy was a hellhole until 1527 when the Spanish finally conquered it. It's out of humane grounds Machiavelli, I think, attacks Christianity, and you know, I would see him I've been taught to see him this way, actually as a kind of forefather of modern liberalism, yeah um, well, it seems like interesting i mean it, what you're saying
2: is essentially uh it's the same critique that like a Kissinger would have for a
1: moralistic foreign policy, yeah, similar yeah, similar yeah, and it's the the purpose behind it, the purpose behind foreign policy realism. It's actually an idealistic, right. humane purpose. Yeah? It, it comes out of 1648, uh, Treaty of Westphalia, when people who were running the countries of Europe realized these religious wars are an absolute disaster for us. Let's not fight about religion anymore. And when contemporary realists say, oh, you know, we, we shouldn't uh, be concerned with uh, ideology or human rights or anything like that, what's really behind that is we don't want ideological and religious wars. Let's have nice little wars where, you know, uh, I conquered Schleswig-Holstein, but I'll give you, you know, a shortstop and a draft choice to be named later in return. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Um, That's not Nietzsche. Nietzsche likes war for its own sake on occasion. I think the line is, a good war justifies any cause. Because of the extreme human excellence tension that's required, the great challenge to human life. He has a passage where he's talking about Russia. He says, I think in the Beyond Good and Evil, I, I think it's possible that Russia will uh, you know, become democratic and will develop the newspaper reading habit. In other words, it's always a sign of contempt when he says that. But I hope not. He says, I hope Russia will become so dangerous that it will form such a threat to Europe that Europe will have to unite and develop a strong will to power and will fight great wars with Russia the 20th century says and he was quite prophetic is the it will be the age of great politics and he's looking forward to that well what that really meant was world wars 1 and 2 well then that
2: but it, people could say that as a sort of a thing about trump saying like well he's going to unite a, a great politics against him so therefore he's great
1: <laughs> do you think so i mean i don't <laughs> think so but yeah, but not. i i don't think anybody is I mean, look. You maybe you see him as as you know the Antichrist, but to me he hasn't shown anything except kind of bravado and bluster, and uh, I'm not a big fan. Um, so you know, could be, but uh, but I I don't see it. Uh, okay. Well, that 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 you know incompetence can get you into big trouble. True. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, let's let's get onto this next question. Here is. Uh, you, there's a there's a definite critique of of, of demagoguery uh, in, in Nietzsche's writings, and my question to you is
1: uh, what is behind it, and generally, well, yeah, go ahead,
2: and and sure. what and and is he correct?
1: Well, look, demagoguery. Um, I think you know in a previous conversation I said he would have said Trump is a demagogue, and I, I'm thinking in terms of one of Nietzsche's heirs, Weber, who is the one who really denounces demagogues. Uh, because they're just petty and they're out for themselves. But it's probably a term one ought to distinguish some things about. There are great demagogues who are, the word literally means speaker of the people, right. who have great projects. Pericles was a demagogue. Caesar, whom Nietzsche admires, was, among other things, a demagogue. So I wouldn't say that that's maybe the, quite the right word. Um, but what he despises is our our leaders who make a big fuss and yell a lot, and it's all trivial and petty. It's not about anything big. If there's an essay in which uh, uh, I think it might be in Thoughts Out of Season, or oh, I think that's when it is, uh, the first one where he goes after the great uh, post 1870. Seventy-one Franco-Prussian War, um, patriotic boasting about the the greatness of German culture. Uh, No, you know the the French still are culturally superior to us, and this kind of petty tinny bragging, he finds repulsive. And yeah,
2: is he? Is he? I mean, if if it's something though that brings you, like you said, to a higher, if you have a higher project that. This could have
1: um, served. Yeah, if you're Caesar, and you're a demagogue, or maybe Pericles, and you're a demagogue, it might be in the name of some great project. Right. Um. I again, I don't see that. I mean, make America great again. That kind of slogan is exactly what he criticizes, in its rather more high toned Prussian form. After I mean, what, Obama 1871? had the
2: same thing with hope. You know, or um, change. Yeah, sure. You yeah. know, very. Very abstract. You could apply anything to it.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, as you maybe know, I I think that uh, Obama was a demagogue too, only a much slicker GQ version of it right. uh, the, than Trump. It's, he, yeah, he wrote to power, I believe, on the same sort of appeal uh, on, on yeah, some level. The tides will stop rising. <laughs> uh, um, you know, they, they, we've elected two people in a row who have no political experience on messianic promises and yeah. that to me is very disturbing but it's 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 effective that's the
2: thing i mean so yeah. it's hard for people to i mean we have um hillary basically did none of that and she she got beaten so
1: it's sort of like kind of a recipe for more of this yeah, I think she was a very, very weak candidate for a lot of reasons, probably not worth talking about, and I think most people know what they are. But um, it does say something about where the American people are now, and, it, and something that disturbs me a lot, which is a kind of lack of sobriety. When you looked at the, uh, just this week, um, you know, the nuclear option, which the Democrats both prepared when Harry Reid was... Uh, was uh, majority leader and courted with Schumer as majority leader, and I sort of get the feeling this could so easily have been avoided if anybody had been a grown up. And right. I have the feeling is a kind of infantilization setting in uh, in the elite, but also in in people generally. And so that would explain why we look for messiahs. Yes.
2: So how would Nietzsche, and 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 how hmm. would he how would he Oppose something like this, and what would be the way to rhetorically deal with it?
1: Good question. And uh, I mean, what his answer always is is to try to appeal, above all, to young people who are disgusted by the baseness of the world they live in and appeal to their love of the noble. And the hope is that these are going to be the strongest people and the most ambitious and the most daring and that something great will come of it. Nietzsche is always aware that what he calls the last man is a real possibility, uh, that uh, the tastes of the vulgar will predominate over those of the noble. And so he tries to create, not in any direct political way, but in a cultural way, Oh, oh, uh, a world of elite thinkers and poets who will musicians who will create a taste again for what is noble um and so you know there were these poets and historians after nietzsche who consciously tried to do that and you know the name they gave themselves well. the third reich this is of course before hitler <laughs> Um, and, you know, uh, they produced great stuff. The poet Stefan George, the historian Ernst Kantarovich, who wrote this great biography of the Hohenstaufen uh, ruler, Frederick II, whom Nietzsche greatly admired, somebody, a uh, German emperor who lived in Sicily and may very well have converted to Islam. Um, amazing character. And the idea is to create in the brightest and the best and the ablest a love not of, you know, not not like Middlebury, a kind of love of, angry love of equality, but a love of what is noble. And and the word he uses for that, was, Kaufman translates it as noble, is forename, which actually means refined, not vulgar. Um, what is noble is what is not simply an expression of your passions, but it's a powerful expression of your passions that have been sublimated and refined by all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh that's what he tried to do. And of course, you know, one would have to say with very mixed success, if any.
2: Yeah. Well, well okay, so he he also opposed this um mm-hmm. what he was experiencing as a German nationalism's resurgence in during yeah. that time and anti Semitism. Mm-hmm and uh what was behind that his critique of those movements
1: well i mean we, we talked about this a little bit just just now um he found it petty uh what, what he always says i'm a good european and his his project political project to the extent that he has one and it's very controversial whether he has one at all but as far as i can see it is pan european or at least it may exclude the english whom he really detested but he wants France and Germany, um, and sort of Western Continental Europe, to become a kind of whole. So the German nationalism that uh, despised France, uh, he has no time for it because it's small and it's petty. There's in Beyond the there's an argument between two old gentlemen about whether someone who's clearly Bismarck was great. And one of them said, no, he's just a petty little jerk. And the other one said, yeah, but he did great things, so he must be great. And Nietzsche says, well, we'll leave these two old guys to their quarreling. Uh, soon someone will come who is much greater than, than, than any of them. Um, that's what he's looking for. And anti-Semitism he sees as stupid from the first part. Um, he has some kind of quasi-racial theories in which um, which are, he's not the only one in, in the 19th century who has them, in which the Jews are seen as somehow very strong, and, uh, and he even suggests, and he says, I'm just kidding, it would be really good to have some intermarriage between these clever Jews and the Prussian aristocracy, because they're very brave, but they're kind of dumb. So, you know, bring them together. Um, Disraeli actually has some similar stuff going on um, in in some of his novels. Um, But he says better to kick out the anti-Semites than the Jews. But he also says, um, we Germans, we've absorbed about as many Jews as we can there better not be a whole lot of immigration from Poland and Russia. We, we just aren't going to be able to absorb that. Um, but that's not a judgment so much against the Jews as it is against the absorptive, the assimilative capacities of the Germans. Um, his attitude towards the Jews, of course, is very complicated. On the one hand, um, he admires their toughness, their capacity to uh, resist assimilation for thousands of years under the worst conditions. But as you know, he's also fundamentally opposed to what Judaism brought into the world. And he thinks of it as, in many ways, the the, the great evil.
2: But, but in, in the way that it was, um, it, I mean, the Jews seem to have... Um, created, I mean are they, are brought forth that tradition in a different way than Christianity has and it seems like his well, critique is more Christianity
1: radicalizes Judaism but he says the origin of slave morality is in the Jews mm-hmm. he says it explicitly and then Christianity pushes it even farther I see so he has an issue with that.
2: Is is so is there do you detect any kind of anti-Semitism in his own
1: thinking what we talk about as anti-Semitism today, no. Uh, the really nasty stuff that we that people found in Nietzsche was put in by his sister, his sister yeah. Elizabeth Forster Nietzsche, who was married to a vicious anti-Semite and all that. As far as I can tell, no. However, when you see quote-unquote slave morality as the worst thing in the world, yeah, which to some extent he does. It's again complicated because slave morality does, in a certain way, increase the torture of the soul, and that's a good thing. Caesar with the heart of Christ, after all. Um, but to the extent that it ultimately leads to democracy, and uh, that it degrades the noble and tries to do what he what he calls a revaluation of values, whereby the old good and bad become good and evil, where evil is the old good, which is why it's tempting and attractive, you know, domination above all. Um, you, it's very easy to turn that into, to, to vulgarize that and turn it into anti-Semitism, and that's, of course, what happened.
2: Interesting. So his his um, his writing, as we know, was, as as you know, was was taken up by the uh largely by his sister and then introduced to this Nazi movement um and there there was a, a huge uh, adherence or at least thought you know bastardization of his thinking uh among their ranks uh, what do you think it was that just because they they just fundamentally misunderstood him
1: i uh, know not just because of that and, you know, it's arguable how fundamentally they misunderstood him. Um, I mean, I think say about Nietzsche that he was, unlike previous philosophers, um, who tended to be very careful about their most radical and, and, and dangerous thoughts, he blatted them out openly, and he did so. Because he thought there was nothing worse than liberal democracy. There was nothing worse than the last man. Nothing worse than the modern world. Which I think, you know, might not have been such a great strategy or judgment. So if he was misunderstood and vulgarized, which he was, it was very easy to do it. And I blame him for a good deal of that. Um, I, 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 you know, it's, it, it's, that's it's the a thing. question I mean, of the responsibility of 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 the philosopher when it comes to rhetoric, and yeah, um, they vulgarized what he said, but then again, you know, the glorification of conflict and struggle. Um, the glorification of the great project of uniting Europe against the menace of Russia I mean I I, I, know, I would say the mainstream of, of Nietzsche's scholarship wants to absolve him of any kind of real responsibility for this stuff I, from what I read it seems to me yeah there's some responsibility there
2: there's a contradiction in the sense that he's he has this. Um, he, he's against German nationalism, but he's okay with European sort of pan-nationalism of
1: <laughs> like, Well, is that really a contradiction? I mean, when you say this is too small and I want it bigger, that's not a contradiction. He, it's still against another. I mean, you're you're glorifying. And he has no problem with warfare. He has no problem with great struggles. What he says he wants in the future is, you know, a number of new philosophers with different. Quasi-religious projects, ideologies, who will fight with each other. Mm-hmm. Only he wants them to fight about noble stuff, not base stuff. He wants in some ways to be you know on a modern level, uh, the kind of stuff you read about in the Iliad, yeah, where people who are fated, and who know they're fated, but still take themselves seriously and struggle nobly, I mean... Even though that was over a woman? Well, yeah, I'm just reading the Iliad with a student. And again, there are lots of levels there. Uh, In a way, it doesn't matter that it's about Helen and Menelaus. The Trojans want to get rid of her, would love to get rid of her, uh, some of the Greeks are scratching their heads and wondering why are we doing this, but a man's got to do what a man's got to do, right? Um, and it's the, in the end, it is the poetry of Homer that makes it noble. Yeah, these are people living in a poetic world, and you get the experience of the nobility of meaningless struggle. And they know it's meaningless because they know they're, the, they're, they're also the tools of the gods, and yet they take themselves seriously. That's, I think, what he's, in some way, pointing to.
2: There is an opacity, though, to this thinking that I think a lot of people have a hard time with. I mean, it's just you say something about the opacity. What do you mean by it, that? It's just this idea that struggle, in and of itself, is. Is good, but not for these reasons. But maybe these other reasons. But even if they are for petty reasons, they're still it's still okay. I mean, I just find that I'm. I, it's hard for me to penetrate what he's. Yeah,
1: saying. no, it <laughs> is. Um, but I mean, think about it in terms of you know an athlete. What does it really matter? You know who wins the uh, NCAA basketball tournament, right? And yet the circumstances, the rules in which you find yourself allow you to put everything you have into it, yeah, even if there's no money on the line. Uh, yeah, and you're doing it what? For fame, for glory, but also to be the best you can be at what you're doing. Yeah? And in a way, what's a warrior for to to, to fight. And to some extent, the circumstances don't matter that much. It's a way of exercising your highest qualities, yeah? Now, where Plato and others come in and say, are those really your highest qualities? Or maybe reason is your highest quality. And Nietzsche is the one who says, no, no, reason kills. It, 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 but there, it also, I mean, his, his critique
2: seems could easily devolve into a might-makes-right philosophy.
1: Yeah, it could, but I I don't think um, that that's at all what he means. I mean, somebody who is willing to risk everything and lose their lives and die nobly and fail is also noble. Um, You see, that Trump who said, oh, John McCain... Um, oh yeah. I don't think he's a hero because he got captured. My heroes don't get captured, they're winners. I cannot I mean you 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 you, you want if you want one thing that Nietzsche would utterly and totally despise and find unforgivable, it's that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That,
1: that vulgar love of success is not
2: Nietzsche at all. Well, it's almost def- defining it in such a petty way that's that's, yeah. That's so, but
1: even if it were unifying Germany, a la Bismarck, that was petty too. Yeah. But not unifying uh, Europe. <laughs> what? But, well, but, the, yeah, but the, but that's just proximate. That's right. not the ultimate end. The purpose of that is to develop a noble civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to ennoble human life, to ennoble the species. At one point, he says, "The trouble with the Christian Church." With Christianity, is it had too much pity for individuals, but not enough for the species? Yeah. Hmm. Um, you have to sacrifice a lot of individuals hmm. if you want to ennoble the species. Uh, it's very strange stuff. Yes. Um, but if I think if you think of it in terms of not so much the end. As having the end, so that you can, that people will have to be tested to the utmost, for the sake of that end, um, then I think maybe maybe makes a little more sense. And, I, and you know, in case anybody is listening out there, I'm not a Nietzschean. Yeah, I see him as the great obstacle, but am I'm, I'm not a follower.
2: Oh, you're not. So you're well. Actually, I, I can I can see how you're not uh, because I mean, ultimately, he's not in favor of democracy, um, and you are. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I'm in favor of democracy, but above all, I'm in favor of decency and moderation. I'm much closer to Aristotle, or Montaigne, or people like that. To me, the Nietzschean project is, in some ways, in all its nobility. Crazy. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um
1: So I, there is a craziness to it I, so I, it. I see him as as the you know the great obstacle and somebody to be taken very seriously, but not as somebody I admire. I mean, admire, yes, but not somebody uh, I ultimately think makes a lot of sense. I think Montaigne knew pretty much everything Nietzsche knew about the human soul, and didn't go nuts.
2: Yeah, I mean Nietzsche drove himself nuts. I mean, we can argue whether he did or well,
1: not. Well, drove himself nuts. I mean, the the story is that he had sex once in his life and got syphilis from that. I don't <laughs> know if that's true. But how much that
2: influenced his philosophy, we don't know. But uh, well,
1: I, I I would say no. The, yeah. This stuff really does follow out of what was around at the time, and he and it's he, I mean the the view of Nietzsche as a, as, as a crazy German. Pretty much, I think, dominated in in the Anglo-Saxon world until after World War II, when Kaufman translated him and wrote some books explaining what a fine fellow he was. Um, but I, I don't think that that you can get rid of him that way.
2: So Nietzsche also, you know, he he was he he treated uh, truth as a matter of perspective, and so you might say that Trump sort of does that in some way.
1: Um, it, it seems like Trump <laughs> well, has. This- you, know, you really want to push this, don't you? <laughs> well I wanna exhaust all the possibilities here. Yeah. I, I I mean, it's a little bit like saying, you know oh uh, well I, I won't I won't draw the, the analogy, but um a reckless liar and somebody who really tries to understand the different human possibilities that lead to different values, different truths? That is very different. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think
2: it's worth comparing. Okay, okay. Well, we'll leave that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, but when you t- when you talk about uh, his his n- not being in favor, what what sort of government was uh, Nietzsche in favor of? An aristocracy?
1: Well, he says very very little about it. Uh, but what it seems to involve is um, highly aristocratic society with different classes um, where most people what he he seemed to admire India he makes a lot of comparisons to India and the castes and the Brahmins and all that Um, and that uh, values of cleanliness obedience yeah, you know, it sounds a little bit like the Boy Scouts. Um, but also, you know, military virtue uh, are, are featured. And there's a blood-curdling line where in, in Beyond Good and Evil where he talks about uh, uh, the vast mass of human beings who are good for service and perhaps only for that. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really chilling and scary and horrible. Though it might be true. <laughs> no, I don't think it's true at all. Do you? I mean, it, most it, people are 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 merely useful. As not most. That, but there are some.
2: Really? <laughs> I mean, there are some that are that are not intelligent. I mean, they just It doesn't
1: mean they're 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 merely there to be used.
2: Oh, okay. I, yeah, that I, that's going too far. But I I mean yeah. it more like the, it's
1: the idea that everybody's going to be able to. No, no, no. I mean, all the children are above average. Yeah, no, no, not that. Yes. But um, but it's not just that he's not an egalitarian, but he's capable of just saying, you know, these people just don't count. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. that's really, you know, that's appalling, I think. But um, that's, I think, what that's such a, you know, he talks about how an aristocracy has to have a good conscience, yeah? Uh-huh. Um, an aristocrat... Maybe, he says, like a parasite, like a vine climbing around a tree. Um, but he has to think of himself as the be-all and end-all of existence. Yeah? Yes. Uh, if he starts feeling that he's a servant of the people, he's dead. Yeah. Um, Frederick the Great, you know, servant to the people, uh, the, the French aristocracy voting away its privileges in a frenzy of democratic fervor right before the French Revolution. That's a decadent aristocracy, and aristocracy has to be stupidly convinced of its own superiority and significance. And this is going to be he, healthy.
2: He's very much a Platonist here in this kind of sense. In that sense, it, Plato has sort of the same idea, doesn't he? What?
1: About uh, about aristocracy? No, I don't think so. First of all, Plato's, I mean, you're talking about the Republic? Yeah. Okay, well, first of all, at least the way I read it, the Republic, he tells you in the beginning, the, the, the best city in the Republic isn't real. It's a kind of blow up on the big screen of, of a healthy soul. Mm-hmm. So those aren't real people, as Aristotle I points see. out, and Plato knows. Secondly, uh, these aristocrats are there by merit. Uh, not by birth they're selected you know there's uh, the noble lie and the wise pick the otherwise and their purpose is to look out for the for the common good
2: so they so they're actually against
1: nietzsche in that sense yes. yeah sure
2: so but i thought very interesting was when he discusses the um the indian caste and he talks about the lowest one that has mm-hmm. to drink the water of people walking in the doorways um they have mm-hmm. to drink that dirty water and they get treated like complete crap. And yeah. and how basically Christianity has made everyone into the member of that group.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, in one way, but of course, in another way, it's the most democratic religion in the sense if everybody's a member of that group. But they have a they have a great soul, right? God right. will love them for this. God will love them for being humiliated and meek and all that. That's the great Christian paradox, right? That right. turns around. That's why slave morality wins. Yeah, I mean the the master. The naive, healthy master comes in and whacks his slave, and the slave says to him, you may strike me on the other cheek, master. <laughs> and the master goes, what? Of course I can. I own you. Whack. And thank you, master. I will pray for you. What do you mean pray for me? What are you talking about? That, that takes some nerve. What? I have this book here. And then the master takes the book, and he discovers in the, when he reads the Bible that the courage of the slave is greater than that of the master yeah jesus is god and he can and he willingly lets himself be suffer a humiliating death and a painful horrible death on the cross because he's more courageous than the master and at that point the master loses his self-confidence and the slave wins yeah I mean, there's always that uppercut in in the Christian story. I am meek, I am humble, I am weak, you can trample all over me, but when the day comes, Augustine says, uh, you know, man, uh, one of the pleasures of the saved is to look down through, I guess, the plexiglass floor of heaven and see the damned suffering. (laughs) Yeah? Now, for Nietzsche, that's vengeful, and Nietzsche does not approve of vengefulness in that way. yeah. You hit me, I'll hit you back harder, that's fine. But ha 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 ha, you'll get it someday. That's ugly. He doesn't like that. Um, but that's, that's the not power horrible. of Christianity and it can unnerve yeah? mm-hmm. the aristocrats and it did because in the same way that philosophy does, it destroys their self-confidence. It introduces a point of view that they're absolutely immune to or they're not immune to, that they're that they're vulnerable to, but that they've never seen before. Right. Oh gosh, maybe this slave is braver than I am. At that point, what is he? He's nothing. He's just the guy who inherited power.
2: Right. And and it it goes back to Nietzsche's critique of reason as a as destroyer of
1: nobility. Yeah, I mean he calls Christianity Platonism for the masses. Yeah, and it clearly is. It's um well it isn't, it isn't, but but you know it is
2: in that respect in that respect, yeah
1: it the effect it has is to dissolve the world of of aristocracy, and he wants to recreate it once it's already been dissolved on an even higher and more paradoxical basis, which my own view is ultimately is something i don 't want to see happen, and I think it's also nuts but but it it's, needs to be it, confronted. intellectually. What? It needs to be confronted intellectually. Yeah. And, you know, as Democrats, as liberal Democrats of one form or another, it, it really is possible that postmodern, i.e. Nietzschean thought, can destroy our confidence in the goodness of what we do. I mean, we're based on natural rights, and if there's no such thing as natural rights, then it's a real question. You can read a book like... Uh, Ronald Dworkin called Taking Rights Seriously from the the 70s. It was a famous book at the time. Oh, my gosh, he's going to rehabilitate rights theory. He doesn't. What he says is what I consider a right is a conviction which is basic to all our other convictions that we hold very strongly. There's nothing. There's nothing there. It's just an opinion. Um, Can you really – at some point or another, I think the Nietzschean challenge – has to be met if you're going to be a serious defender of democracy. Uh,
2: yeah, and it seems like you have to at least respond to his critique of the the last man on some yeah. level, and I, and how do you do that? Well, I mean... We have, we have, we have a little more time after this.
1: Okay, well, well, the simple answer is this. Um, Liberal democracy was established by people who were living on the capital of an aristocratic society. And so certain kinds of virtues were assumed. And to the extent that liberal democracy eats away at them, the question is, how do you restore them? And that's hard. And this is what a good deal of the argument is on about now among I think serious people, both on the left and the right, because there's a kind of liberal, dem, you know, liberal in our contemporary sense version of what these virtues should be. They should be compassion, yeah, you know, above all, and the love of equality. And I think on at least I wouldn't call it the right exactly, but a part of the right. Uh, the argument is, well, it's the old Aristotelian virtues of uh, self-control and control of the passions and moderation re- and respect for others and so forth. Go ahead.
2: Well, no, and, and and moderation and, and
1: moderation, yeah.
2: But yeah. this, but this critique that it that that Nietzsche that Nietzsche gives seems to me that he's saying that dem, that this democratization. Uh, what is his critique? I mean, what is this, what is this last man? Uh, he,
1: he calls this morality as timidity. It's not, not bold enough, not brave enough. You want to read a good book? My, my colleague Harry Clore wrote a wonderful book on moderation where he takes up the Nietzschean critique and responds to it in an Aristotelian way. And I think that'd be... Okay. That would be a good good way to do it to look at it.
2: And and this last finally the the last the last thing the last man um it, it's it would seem that Trump on some in some ways the embodiment of that.
1: <sighs> yes, no. I mean the last man is simply the self-satisfied bourgeois. And I think maybe Nietzsche was wrong about something in the sense that the self-satisfied bourgeois does not stay self-satisfied. He gets tremendously excited, but usually in a fairly trivial way. And maybe that's where both Trump and I would say uh, the PC kids rioting in Middlebury come in. You, know, you need some excitement in your life. and. Uh, in different ways they both provide it.
2: Well, that's a, that's a uh, an interesting uh, thing that uh, hopefully we'll talk about in the next, um, because this, this goes into your critique of this PC um, environment that you find yourself in in, a, in
1: academia. Yeah, well, I mean, in academia, yeah, Kenyon is still relatively a good place to be, and I want to put in a pitch for Kenyon right here. Liberal <laughs> Great education school. still goes on here. Yes, indeed.
2: Uh, but it is it is something that he sort of used, uh, the, the opposition to it, or the revulsion against the kind of over-policing um, of language uh, that sort of represented a huge part of his appeal.
1: Nietzsche's. Uh, Trump. Trump. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it,
2: it, it <laughs> okay. did. It did. I mean, let's see. Yeah, right.
1: Right, but what I'm suggesting is the level at which they're operating, the two of them, is not all that different. The the level in which uh, who is operating? Both both Trump and the PC types.
2: They're Uh, appealing
1: to a kind of cheap emotional excitation, yeah? Right. Uh, Which in some ways can be seen as just a kind of one more consumer good, one more entertainment for the next to last man. I got you. Interesting.
2: So it's like two sides of the same sort of...
1: It's to some extent
2: a yeah. method which is, yeah. is 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 this petty pettiness that that 's ultimately not helpful
1: not and not serious
2: not and not serious yeah, yeah. all right well thank you uh, professor we we uh, I think we got this out has some been good, fun thank you some good stuff here and uh, I will send you a copy of this and you can review good. it and um, we will um hopefully the next time we talk um I would like to discuss your writing specifically the article you wrote about um uh, liberal education, yeah, um, sure. And uh, we will uh, get into that. So I w- thank you thank for you. giving me your time here. It was really great. a pleasure.
1: Thanks for asking me. This was fun. Take care. All right. Have a good time. Have a good Take one. Care. Bye. Bye. Bye.
2: And now, insurance-minded speeches from Geico. Hardship.